Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prepared to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is God's word. Start off tonight telling a little um, story. I don't know. I've been... uh, kind of on just like a history slash church history kick. So I, I try to incorporate these stories as much as I can. They just really excite me. Um, so hopefully you'll, you'll bear, bear with me, bear with me if you can. But um, when we think of Rome, where uh, much of this early Christian history was taking place, there were these, a lot of eras of significant like persecution for Christians where basically it wasn't legal for you to be a practicing Christian in this massive Roman empire. And then this guy named Constantine, who controversial figure, uh, came and legalized Christianity and said, okay, it's legal to be a Christian now. You guys can go to church and write your books and have a good time. Uh, a few, about a generation after that, Constantine's nephew by the name of Julian became the emperor. And Julian was an interesting guy because Julian was not convinced about this whole Christianity thing. Julian was much more 
uh, infatuated, much more drawn to like the traditional Roman pantheon religion. But he saw Christianity spreading just as, as wide as it could be. And so he essentially says, I'm going to start a campaign like full of propaganda, and I'm going to try and get people back into following the traditional Roman religions instead of this Jesus fellow. In fact, I actually found an old historical propaganda poster. Garrett, if you could put that up there. Yeah, so um, I think I found that in the Smithsonian. Um, But it's the only joke I have, so you know. (laughs) That's, yeah, that's, that's got to last you about 30 minutes or so. Um, but he launches this campaign, basically trying to bring out this propaganda of trying to keep people from leaving what he felt the Roman people needed, which was to return back to what made them really Roman. But Julian had a problem, and it's that there was a major difference between the people who practiced the Roman religion and the Christians who practiced Christianity. And it was charity. See, Christians had inherited this idea that was just a couple centuries removed from Jesus' actual lifetime, where they believed that every person, whether they were a slave or poor and impoverished, or whether they were part of an ethnicity that was frowned upon, no matter their circumstances, they were still entitled to love and respect and care. And there was this whole, like, charity had its own connotation in the Roman world, but it was basically you gave to people based on their ability to give back to you. So if, uh, if, if a buddy of mine is fairly, fairly wealthy, but he's having a rough time, then I'll be charitable to him. I'll give to him because at a certain point when, fate, when fortune swings his way, he'll give money back to me. That was the whole system. But what Christians were doing was they were giving and they were sacrificing their lives for people who had nothing to give back in return. Why would you give to the poor knowing they'll never be able to give back to you? Why would you spend time with the terminally ill? They'll never be able to hold your hand in sickness. And so Julian wrote this letter to his contemporaries basically saying, these flippin' Christians, man, they're so good at being aware of the entire community and treating them with love that nobody cares about the Roman religion anymore. And it really goes to show just how significant these teachings of everyone, regardless of their status, is entitled to some form of dignity. Like that was a groundbreaking idea around this time. And I would say that the lessons that these selfless Christians were living out of was it a ripple effect of this book that we're in right now, which is the book of Philemon. Now, I know many of us have been here for the past couple of weeks, so this might be a little repetitive, but I want to give a quick run through of the book of Philemon for those who may not be familiar or those who just don't remember. Um, Philemon is a very short book. What, what Vi just read earlier, that was the whole thing, front to back. 
Philemon is a, is a small, short letter written by the Apostle Paul to a friend of his by the name of Philemon. Philemon is a relatively wealthy guy. He probably had a big house and the community around him, they met at his house for church. We also think he was wealthy because Philemon owned a slave. And slavery, and I'll try to get into this a little bit later, was a, a different scenario than what we tend to think of when it comes to American slavery. A lot of it was more debt-focused and not quite race or ethnicity-focused. But you were still property if you were a slave. That's the important thing to remember. So Philemon has a slave by the name of Onesimus. They have some kind of conflict, and Onesimus runs away. Now, Onesimus has just committed the double cardinal error, which is, one, he's a slave, which means he's the bottom of the totem pole, and second, he's a runaway slave. Runaway slaves could be branded like you would with cattle. They could be horribly punished and tortured, or outright just killed for what they've done. So Onesimus doing what he did was probably one of the worst cultural taboos he could commit in this time. Onesimus and Paul at some point meet, like Andy mentioned last week, they potentially met in prison, and Onesimus becomes a Christian. And Paul Knowing Philemon as a friend, but also knowing Onesimus as this young new convert, steps into their conflict and says, all right, I have instructions for both of you. Onesimus, you need to return to your master. What you did was wrong. You violated the, 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 the rules that we have around this, around this body, and you need to go back and reconcile with your master. But the weight of this letter was not on Onesimus, it was on Philemon. Because he said, look, when this guy comes back to you, you could brand him, you could beat him, you could punish him. But I'm actually gonna ask you to consider him a brother and not a slave. I want you to treat him not as property, but as a living, breathing human being worthy of dignity. In fact, I want you to receive him as if I was coming to you right now. And if there's any debt that exists between the two of you, I'll pay it myself, is what Paul said. So there's a couple, there's a couple, that's, that is essentially the essence of this book. And I have a couple points that I want to make about this today. Here's the first. I am my brother's and my sister's keeper. That's my first point. I am my brother's and my sister's keeper. In the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, there's these two people, Adam and Eve, the two first humans created. They lived in peaceful harmony with God until they eventually kind of turned their hearts away from him and launched this whole thing that we Christians call the fall, bringing sin into the hearts of people and into circumstances and everything else like that. Really when everything went bad, Adam and Eve had two sons. I'm sure this is a familiar story for many of you. Abel and Cain were their names. Cain and Abel uh, 
both went and made a sacrifice before God, made an offering to him face to face. Abel's offering, bless you, uh, was received by God and Cain's was not. Cain was so angry at his brother and so jealous and so filled with hatred that he lured his brother into a field and killed him in cold blood. And when God asked Cain, Cain, where is your brother? The response he had was, am I my brother's keeper? This is a fantastic story because it speaks so much. There's so much foreshadowing there for what this meant for what humanity would eventually grow into. You got to think, these were literally the two sons of the first humans ever created who had transitioned from peace and perfection into sin and corruption. The first two sons in history murdered each other. And it creates this dark foreshadowing of what was to come, that there would be not just a hostility between people and God, but between people and people that we wouldn't just learn to be offensive and violent in our hearts to God, but that we would be violent and offensive to each other. And as the story of scripture continues to unfold, that only becomes more and more true. There's more violence, there's more hostility, there's horrible things like sexual assault, all types of things. Bible is real rough to read sometimes. And the divisions that would happen were not just individual. Oftentimes, the divisions that would grow between people was not just through one person and one person. It would grow between entire ethnic groups, would become hostile towards each other. The wealthy and the privileged and the powerful would use their power to often mistreat and take advantage of the less powerful and the less wealthy. This created a cycle that we see throughout, not just the Bible, but through history of oppression from those with the power of those who didn't have it and of war and bloodshed between people groups. And we know this because a common criticism of the prophets who were these figures in the Old Testament who God would give messages to speak out to all the people One of their common criticisms of Israel and of the people was that they were guilty for participating in systems that took advantage, that trampled over the poor, that were violent towards other people. And that Israel, God's little people group in the Old Testament, they were meant to be ambassadors of God's blessing, but instead they trampled the poor and they mistreated the foreigners. And then in the big span of biblical history, we have Jesus intervene. And Jesus was the living God taking the form of a little baby who entered into time and space. He spent time with foreigners that you weren't supposed to spend time with if you were Jewish. He spent time with the social outcasts and outsiders. He spent time with the poor and the sick and the blind. 
He rebuked the self-righteous and he encouraged the shameful. And he taught a message of love. Jesus loved people in a way that signified that there was a reversal happening of the deep divisions and hatreds that had formed over thousands of years. And then in the greatest act of love of Jesus's ministry, not through a healing or through a miracle, but he literally offered his own life in a painful and humiliating way to restore everything that had been lost and to reconnect the love of God and the love of self and the love of brother and sister. As Christians, we receive the love of Jesus and his holiness, but we also receive his mission to heal a broken world of broken people. So this brings us back to the story of Philemon. It's important to note that Paul wasn't saying, look, we all know that this dude Onesimus is a slave, right? I'm saying, give him a break. Just cut him some slack, man. Just, 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 you know, it's not a big deal. It's important to note that's not what Paul was saying. Paul was not saying, give him a break or make an exception. He was saying, no, 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 you don't understand. This man is your brother now. He's not a slave. He's not your property. Paul was calling Philemon to join all followers of Jesus into bringing healing into a broken place. And so the question for us is, what does it look like to break the mold of our culture and to treat men and women with dignity that we're not extending to them? The first and easiest and, and possibly most important is what the message that we see throughout the New Testament, which is to take care of the poor, to take care of the widows and the little children and those who are under harm, those who are vulnerable to the throes of society. As Christians, this is, it's not optional. It is necessary for the Christian church to have a presence in a place where people are most at risk for harm. The early church, like I said, it's the story that I shared earlier. The distinct thing about Christians during this time was that they volunteered their lives and they recognized that their life was not about themselves, but was about the other person. It was not about getting their life through seeking their own, but living through pouring their life out for others. I've told this story a million times, but one of the big things that brought people to think fondly of Christianity for one of the first times in early history was that when plagues would ravage through entire sections and regions of the Roman Empire, Christians would stay in towns that were infected while everyone else was leaving because they were healing people. And I don't even mean just like praying and, and, and supernaturally healing. Like they were just holding people's hands. And they were administering just bare, bare like necessities of medical care to people who were almost definitely going to get them sick too. 
This is the life of a Christian who recognizes the people who are most in need and gives their life for them. Even in today, we, we can say like, oh yeah, well in Rome, they didn't consider the poor like that. I would say we can, we can see plenty of the invisible people and the unseen and the unloved in our communities, even to this day. I mean, think of the foster care system. Think of the desperate need for adoption for all of these kids or just for, for people to work in foster care or to, or to actually foster these kids into, into their homes. It's a tremendous need that we have. And I don't want to speak bad about the church. Like I know that statistically Christians are much more likely to uh, uh, give to these types of charities and to foster and to adopt. And I think that's beautiful, but it's also still a huge need that we see. It is still a tremendous need. So we have to consider the poor when we think of this. But I would also go here there's something really interesting about being a Christian or maybe just being alive in 2022. You have to think, if you were alive maybe even 100 years ago, the number of people that you would interact with in your entire lifetime would probably be in the hundreds, which is a relatively small number. And that's if you lived in a big community. But now, not only do we have travel that allows us to interact with people on different ends of the cities that we live in, we also have phones and computers. And we get to see the lives of all these people around us. We get to watch YouTube channels and watch television shows and get invested in the lives of musicians and celebrities and actors and actresses and all these things. These things were impossible 100 years ago. But I've also noticed that as we've socialized more and more with all these people, whether it's internet strangers from 2,000 miles in a random direction or some celebrity, the, the humanity that we see is starting to get diminished. I don't think I could ever say to someone's face who's right in front of me, the type of things that I've seen people say to each other online, right? Like, it's like the old joke of if you've ever been on Xbox Live or, you know, one of those old, like, gaming channels, like, you just hear, like, the worst things you'd ever hear, just slurs and horrible comments left and right. I think a big part of it is because, like, humanity is being lost there. We don't see people as full humans that we interact with through just a voice channel or just a screen. Like, I had this thought a couple months ago, there was this, uh, I only mildly got involved in this, but the, the court case between uh, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, like two celebrities who were airing out all of the most private and intimate elements of their very toxic relationship for the entire world to see. And a lot of us were just eating it like it was candy. And I just thought to myself, like, this feels weird. I'm like eating someone's trauma for entertainment. 
And I thought, like, if this was someone that I actually knew, like, a, like I, that I would have thought was a human being, I don't think I could just sit there and just collect details about their lives while I, you know, eat popcorn. Like, it feels uncomfortable. And I mean, uh, like, like, there's elements of this type of celebrity culture that are impossible to get away from. But I mean, my, my meager contribution, my meager thought for that is, do we pray for these people? Like, I, I've been starting to think really hard about my, my love, my deep love for true crime podcasts. It's a big thing. I love them. I do. But there is a part of me that has to think, like, I sometimes get really excited to listen to 45 minutes of a narrator talk about someone's worst experience that most likely ended up in someone being horribly harmed or even murdered. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to just eat this. I don't want to just consume this. Like, this is a person. This person was made in the image of God. I want to be really careful about that. And so I don't know, like I, I don't think I, I have the, the, the fortitude to say wrong or perfectly right. And I don't think we should end up on that side of it. I guess my encouragement would just be remember. Remember in the same way that Paul was telling Philemon, hey, that dude's not a chair. He's a person. And I want you to treat him like a person. I want you to treat him like a brother. If I can listen to a true crime podcast and like enjoy it in a way where I'm still mourning the state of human life right now and where I can still pray for this person and for this family, then I think it can be redeemed. But again, I think if we're just eating it like, it's, like, it's, like they're Twizzlers, and we have to challenge that. I think, I think we have to consider that. That's my first point. Here's my second. Philemon was a preview of the kingdom of healing. Philemon was a preview of the kingdom of healing. As we come to understand this story of the scriptures, I kind of like breezed through a big chunk of it when I talked about the uh, Cain and Abel leading to, um, leading to Jesus. Uh, but we, we start to understand the deeper we get into the scriptures that there is this story that we're inside of. That contrary to popular belief, being a Christian doesn't mean just having a printed list of rules to follow and that you do your best until you die and then you try to get into heaven. No, being a Christian means being invited and then wrapped up into a grand story of cosmic restoration, of restoring what was lost to a world that has lost a lot and that we can see. We can see that loss. And we can recognize that God is blessing the world that we live in just inch by inch in a way that is undoing the curse that we live under. 
This is why it's important to see what Paul was talking to Philemon about as not just some random little uh, interaction or some isolated event, but this was a demonstration of what Jesus' message of love thy neighbor truly means. That there was a change that was starting to happen. There was a change where suddenly people who would mistreat and abuse and dehumanize were now being called to love and show kindness instead. This is an important message to catch because it's supposed to fill us with hope. Because otherwise, what are we doing as Christians? Just riding this wave out until eventually we just get buried like the rest of the people before us? In reality, we should believe that there is a lot of hope that we're looking into that God has started a work not just in us, but in all of creation, and that just as he's promised to finish the work in us, he will finish everything, and he will restore everything in a beautiful way. Reminds me of this passage from Isaiah 2. It goes like this, And he shall judge among the nations, and he shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, I love this because it's not saying, oh yeah, their swords get thrown in the trash, their spears get you know, jammed in the garbage disposal. They're getting changed. But what are they getting turned into? They're getting turned into plowshares and into pruning hooks. These are farming instruments. The very things that men made to kill each other and to cause violence and destruction in the world, God is going to turn them into something that will bring beauty into the world, that will cultivate creation instead of cursing it. Again, this is the story of God healing what's been broken out of great love for his people. So simply put, if we are Christians, then we are part of a story of healing. If we are Christians, then we are part of a story of healing. So some might say, ah, oh, you know, well, this is great. This is great news. I'm just going to sit around and I'm going to twiddle my thumbs and I'm going to wait for, you know, the, the shining kingdom to descend from earth and just make everything better. And that's not quite what we're asked to do. Again, like if, if, if Jesus has saved us, he's saved us not just, and, and he's not just given us his holiness, he's also given us his mission. Jesus was a, was a God, Jesus is a God and a man of healing the world. And that is the same call that all of us are receiving as well. So it doesn't mean that we should sit idly watch the world burn and wait for something to change. In reality, we should be using our hands as instruments and vessels for God to do good. And it doesn't have to be groundbreaking, earth-shattering stuff. Literally, all Paul was saying was, don't beat up this guy when he comes back. Recognize the ways in which you would mistreat this person and then don't do that. <laughs> 
recognize the ill that you hold against the people in your lives and then respond with love instead. See what is selfish and attempts to do what is selfless instead. See the ways in which our work and our families and our cultures are more driven by the spirit of Cain that says, who's my brother? Who's my neighbor? And replace that with the love of Christ that says everyone, they're all my neighbors. They're all my brothers. They're all my sisters. I seek the good of all with what I have. I've also had this thought too recently that a way for us to really place our hope in something new coming to us, in this all things made new promise that God has given, is we kind of have to live inside the weakness that we feel. Again, like we, we try really hard to pretend that we're perfectly fine and that we're perfectly okay. And we cover over our sins and our insecurities often. And I think that Christ's hope will mean so much more when we live consciously out of our weakness rather than burying it as if we're perfectly okay. That's my thought. I want to read one last passage for you guys before we close out. It's a passage of the hope that Jesus told the apostle John about many years ago, but it's a hope that we should all still have today. Revelation 21, verses one through seven. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All of these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings and I will be their God and they will be my children. Please play with me. Father God, um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great blessing, Father, to, to see the story that we're inside of, that we're not just random folks who have inherited this religion, this set of rules, this just this boxed, ancient, archaic thing, this like handbook manual religion. But God, like we're living inside your story of healing and we're living inside that as participants. And so Lord, we know that we're not alone. 
And we thank you for your presence and your help with us. Because at the end of the day, God, we can't do anything in and of ourselves. We can only do what you give us. We can only perform what you help us to do. And we thank you for all that you've done for us. Please keep our hearts encouraged and filled with hope on this day. In Jesus' name, amen.